Welcome to Episode 5 of O'Neill & Associates Federal Insight, a podcast production of OA On Air. Today we are joined by John Cahill, Jen Crouchin, and Ben Craig for a discussion of the fiscal year 2022 appropriations earmark process, as well as a look ahead for what that process will look like this year. Be sure to listen until the end to hear our team's predictions on what you'll hear from President Biden at tonight's State of the Union. Enjoy. Good afternoon, gentlemen. <laughs> Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. It's uh, March 1st. We are coming at you um, part of the third month of the year. Uh, the day of uh, State of the Union. It's the first time um, that the president will be addressing Congress under our State of the Union. Previously, it was just a joint address to Congress. Uh, we're all eagerly anticipating that conversation, but we really wanted to talk, um, get a little bit ahead of ourselves and talk about appropriations. Uh, certainly, we are anticipating, we know that committee staff and members of the appropriation committees in both the House and the Senate have been working to really kind of finalize the agreement uh, for the omnibus and hope to have that finalized by the deadline when the current CR runs out, the continuing resolution March 11th. So at that point, we'll be able to wrap up FY 2022 appropriations. We understand that as is right now, all of the uh, congressionally directed spending that had been included by both the House and the Senate is so far still intact and we're hopeful and believe that will still be the case. Um, and that being said, I know that there's uh, many folks are eager to find out when the next round for FY 2023 uh, will begin. I know, Ben, you've been kind of monitoring this a little bit. If you want to just kind of give us a quick little synopsis, that would be great. Absolutely. You know, funny enough, just as we're witnessing the end of last year's process, we're starting to see uh, some of the first beginnings of the FY23 process. I believe so far in Massachusetts, we've seen um, Congressman Moulton's uh, appropriations request page go up onto his website, as well as Congresswoman Clark. Um, the others are still waiting. Uh, that deadline is still a little unclear on the House side. I know Congressman Moulton has a tentative slot for March 30th posted on his website for all requests to be made by that point. But, uh, you know, judging off of last year's process, we might see that move a little bit further into April. I think some of the deadlines for the subcommittees last year were right around April 15th, April 16th. Um, so I think there might be a little bit of uh, wiggle room, if you would. Um, and I know from Congresswoman Clark's page, there still isn't a deadline there. And I think so, that- So Ben, will there be, will there be changes uh, from last year? And that, you know, if, if we all recall that the House had a very complicated system and, um, I mean, folks did okay, but it, it was very complicated. Do you think that, uh, and even deferring the due date, that there'll be changes uh, that'll smooth this out a little bit and make it a little simpler? I mean, I know that's certainly been part of the conversation that we've held with the offices, uh, talking to staff. They expected to see some changes coming up uh, in this round, You know, learning some lessons from the FY22 process. Um, what we still haven't seen, though, is, you know, from the, the main committee pages last year, they put out a, a full listing where you could find uh, your representative to put forth a request. And they also had instructions for each one of the subcommittee bills um, that kind of explained a little bit more about which accounts you could post to 
Um, and that's where we expect to see those changes, I believe. That still has not been released uh, by the House side or the, the Senate side. So we're still looking for those documents uh, to perform an assessment of, of what kind of changes we're expecting for this next fiscal year. I have to imagine though, Chairwoman uh, Rosa DeLora probably wants to wait <laughs> maybe until the FY 2022 is wrapped up, but um, I too am anticipating hopefully that kind of dear colleague letter talking about the process, their, in, their deadlines to then back up to when the members need to have finalized and selected their um, selections to then you know pick their list. And um, I think a, a huge, John, to your point, there was a lot of um, changing of the deadlines last year. I think a huge detriment though, is the fact that they were still majority remote um, at that point. And so at yeah. least now staff are, are in the building, they're meeting um, and that maybe they've been able to, you know, because we have been operating under a couple of CRs, try to work out these kinks um, beforehand uh, is, is my, my guess. I'm curious to see if, a little bit to your point, if some of these, you know, the subcommittees are the subcommittees, but if some of these various uh, funding programs and titles have been opened up or expanded kind of under lessons learned um, the last go around, I think that there was a couple of projects or opportunities that we were assisting with that just didn't necessarily fit in some of these titles once we had further conversations right. with the subcommittee. I think that was a factor in the House committee not achieving the $15 billion goal for the uh, member-directed projects. If you recall, they've said, well, we're going to set aside $15 billion here. And after they put out the guidelines and everyone scrambled to see if they could fit their project in, they ended up spending $10 billion, which is quite a shock. <laughs> you know, <laughs> usually, usually you spend it all. But uh, I think that, that that system was a factor in keeping the number down. I don't think that they want to go through that again this year. No, I I would um, I wonder if now we're just gonna you know go right over that. <laughs> that yeah, right, know. right. Maybe it'll be twenty billion because you got to get the five billion back from last year that you didn't spend. <laughs> right, and it is a Mitchell. You don't want to you know be leaving money at the table, certainly, right? So, um, yeah, that will be interesting. And, and to that point too, I think that a lot of the member offices were cautioned by the subcommittee, and then certainly cautioned applicants. They're only going to be able to include their top one, two, maybe um, right. uh, projects. That's why they had to rank them one through 10. I think we saw, and obviously we have a, a great blog post on our website that really kind of does a deep dive into each state, all the Senate um, uh, projects that were included, and then all of the um, individual member um, director requests for each house members, 10 and the ones that were then funded. I, I think, you know, most, some states had eight, six, five, 10, you know, that were, were funded. It was really quite remarkable when you think about it because that was such a strong uh, message we were getting from Congress last spring. Sure, yes. Just to throw in an example there, Jen, I know Connecticut, uh, I believe there was one representative that didn't get all 10 of their requests and it was Chairwoman uh, Delora. I believe she had eight wow. of her projects funded. Oh. Wow, and the others had all of theirs funded? I believe that's true, yeah. I'd have to look back at the numbers, but it's it's in the blog post. That's unusual. <laughs> the, chair, the chairperson doesn't get every project, wow. Yeah. yeah. 
I do think too, and not to get too specific, we did see a couple of themes of some members chose to maybe fund projects on their priority list that, you know, were some of those things that are not as always as easy to find or as, um, you know, interesting, you know, especially it's a lot of the, uh, the road work that was required. Um, that was one that we saw a couple members take on. Um, others, they really focused on um, services, community services, so be it health centers or um, uh, shelters or connections to schools. That was something that was uh, really prominent. So I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, based on that, how they kind of change their themes or their priority uh, focuses, uh, given what was funded last year. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, I mean, if you go back 12 years to the days of earmarks, um, there were many, many schools of higher ed uh, included. And I was struck, I don't think that the number even came close this past go around, not to say that there were none, but there weren't too many. Do you think that'll change going forward here? Sure, uh, Ben, feel free to weigh in too. I wonder, I mean, last year, I know campuses of higher education, they were just trying to make it through the next day as far as managing yeah. the kind of the COVID response. And I think that maybe they were just overwhelmed. I mean, to be fair, it wasn't an easy application. I think, John, we joked earlier this week that you used to just call up Senator Kennedy and provide a paragraph and say, this is what we're looking for, for funding. And yeah, yeah, it was a lot, <laughs> a lot easier. Now you have to be able to, you know, find the appropriate subcommittee, the appropriate title to ensure that you meet all the requirements. There really is some kind of having to understand legislatively how this would fit into the appropriate accounts. I think that we did see that a lot of staff were as helpful as possible. And certainly they've had some additional briefings from subcommittees on how to advise them going forward. And there's definitely been some you know, best practices and lessons learned, but I think it's really hard to navigate. And then there's pretty extensive narratives that you have to include and details yeah. and really do want to see it be shovel-ready project so that you can wrap it up and spend the funding within a year of um, being awarded this grant. So, you know, how many campuses, you know, are now, maybe they're looking now and saying there's some capital projects or some other kind of opportunities that they were not able to pursue given the restraints financially and capacity-wise that they were under last spring. Um, I love to think that there's some real opportunities there. I remember you know, we had talked to a couple of different um, organizations that have been interested and they just did not have the capacity to kind of come up with this and think about it, or it was such an early start project that they had to think about it more that hopefully they've had the last year or seen what was funded. I don't mm -hmm. know ben, if you have kind of a overall sense of what was funded as far as higher ed projects and some themes that you saw. Saw less on the brick and mortar side of things as John kind of initially assessed there more so on uh, research projects or uh, transitions to more renewable energy sources. For example, I believe it was Congressman Auchincloss and Keating paired up uh, for a project with Bristol uh, Community College um, for an offshore wind institute. Um, and uh, the senators from Rhode Island, Reed and White House, got together for some URI, uh, I think it was their marine biology program, some research funding there. Um, so I wonder to what extent these people already had the project descriptions, you know, mm -hmm. research projects that have been in the works. Uh, yeah. 
whereas more bricks and mortar funding for repairs to buildings um, that didn't receive as much attention in the requests or in things that got through into the uh, the Senate uh, texts as well. Yeah, that that's a very, very good point. And Jen reminds us both, I think, with the shovel ready terminology, the, the, the committee just did not look favorably on bricks and mortar and extremely difficult. Uh, maybe on the Senate side, it was more favorable, but um, it'll be interesting to see in this next round, whether they open it up to at least some bricks and mortar for improvements or, you know, uh, to restore an entity. Um, so maybe not new construction, but something that would, would um, bring a facility into the 21st century, particularly as it relates to climate change and, um, as you say, resiliency. I think that's a really important theme. And I do think what is nice is that we have seen and identified funding for bricks and mortar and infrastructure improvements and rehabilitation and resiliency under new programs that have now started to roll out under the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that was passed in November. I think a lot of um, federal agencies now are referring, referring to it as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, BIL. Um, and so there has been opportunities for that. There is opportunities for, um, you know, a lot of funding that is going to the states uh, for formula and for grants for, you know, EV charging stations, for solar panels, for uh, additional programs that have been plussed up, but also some additional ones uh, at the federal level uh, to be exploring this uh, directly. So, you know, I'm curious how those applicants maybe who applied last time maybe will be pivoting and looking at directly at these uh, grant mm -hmm. programs. And then at the same time, how many projects or opportunities that they have been trying to, you know, members of Congress and others get into Build Back Better, which is just really dead at this point, will try to tailor that towards an appropriation. Certainly, you mean along the climate change provisions or related to climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, all the last couple of weeks, even with BBB not really existing, many, many comments on we need to do, we must do climate related provisions uh, somehow here. So, and, you know, the tax extenders certainly, and, and then of course appropriations. So I think they, they'll grab any tool possible within appropriations to forward that which they thought they were going to forward uh, for climate change and BBB. Definitely. Yeah. So we'll be, um, you know, certainly putting out more information as we get, um, you know, deadlines and some directions from the House and Senate committees. I'd be remiss not to <laughs> get your thoughts on the State of the Union tonight. I think, um, as you said earlier, the theme for everything going into this year in this presidency certainly is climate change and addressing that and looking long term. I know that we're really expecting to see him, uh, President Biden, lay out maybe not calling it Build Back Better, but taking elements from that bill that had that bipartisan support and packaging it uh, to include those plus ups in new programs for climate change legislation, as well as finally addressing the tax extenders, which have expired um, and are yeah. just not involved at this point. But, you know, any other thoughts as far as what to, to watch for or, or directives or direction that will kind of come out of this speech tonight? Uh, ben, do you, you can grab the football there if you want. I, I have I a think, couple of thoughts, but go ahead. 
I think there will be a few people around the world watching uh, to see the take on, on the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Uh, so a little bit outside of the scope of the appropriations conversation, but I'm certainly um, you know, interested and looking forward to, to see how that's uh, progressed and what the president will say about it tonight. I'll be curious if he mentions um, and calls for a specific amount of money for Ukrainian emergency uh, funding support and relief. I know that there's been some figures um, proposed and there seems to be an overall sentiment on the Hill to be supportive of some uh, supplemental emergency funding and support for Ukraine. Is that gonna get tied to the omnibus package that includes the FY2022 appropriations? We'll, we'll have to see, that would be a huge feat to pull off in, in 10 days, but um, certainly we could probably try to do that. Yeah. I, I actually I was going to say very much the same thing. I think question one is, is he going to bring that supplemental topic up or just stick to the script on, you know, what we're doing to be helpful to the Ukrainians Two, um, either tonight or in the, in the days ahead, we will they will have to address the issue of do you do a standalone Ukrainian supplemental bill, just that restricted to that. Uh, highly focused, of course, or do you try to fold something into uh, the omnibus bill? My guess would be the former, not the latter. Because I think that uh, I'd said to you folks that facing conversations last week, it was pretty evident that uh, the House, at least, and probably the Senate wants to do this omnibus right now, if they could, immediately, and be done with it. Then you could move on to uh, a supplemental and give it due consideration. I mean, the other, the other part of that is that, you know, the House Armed Services or Senate Armed Services are the authorizing committees for whatever we would be providing uh, militarily, right? Yes, there is the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, but there are appropriations. So I, I got to believe that the House and Senate Armed Services Committee would want to roll in what we're going to provide uh, to the Ukrainians over the next X period. Um, that's my opinion, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Well, they'll get their marching orders tonight for sure. <laughs> I think so. I, I'm pretty certain they will. <laughs> well, thanks. This was really helpful. I think um, certainly a lot, a very busy, busy March and uh, a number mm. of things on the agenda, some of which we just briefly mentioned today, but many others that are going to be coming down the pipeline. So, um, We'll have to revisit this conversation again. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thank ben. you. John. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to episode five of O'Neill and Associates Federal Insight, a podcast production of OA on Air. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow our pages on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Also, be sure to leave a review below so that others like you can find our podcast. Thank you for listening.